Welcome to Publishing Gribble, the podcast that breaks the rules and helps you kickstart your career as a successful nonfiction author and entrepreneur. I'm your host, Melina Benson. Welcome to another episode of Publishing Gribble. This time we have Phil Sean as a guest, and I am I'm just thrilled about that. We're going to talk about how to make an event unforgettable. So who is Phil? Phil is the director of experience for Social Media Examiner. And for over 12 years, over 12 years, he has created amazing customer experiences at events like Social Media Marketing World and the Social Media Success Summit. Throughout his 30 plus year career, I cannot believe that can be 30 years, Phil. (laughs) (laughs) Phil has created memorable experiences for businesses like Cog Industries, nonprofits, schools, churches, and a lot of other things. He is also a jack saxophonist. That's difficult for a Dane to say. Saxophonist? Did I say it right? (laughs) Saxophonist, sure. Saxophonist, that's it. A pickleball enthusiast and a songwriter. I've witnessed that, and he's good. He uh, leveraging his uh, extensive experience with virtual, hybrid, and in-person events. He's organized events for up to five thousand people, and as a result, he has developed a, an inspirational model that uh, we can learn from, and that he receives reviews like the best conference ever. I have personally been personally been at huge fan and an active participant in social media marketing world since 2019. And I can testament that we are talking about a fabulous and unforgettable experience, unlike any of the well-organized, very exciting and completely forgotten conferences that I took part in over the past 30 years. So welcome, Phil, and congratulations on your new book, which launches today. (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much, Malene. I really appreciate being here. And I do think we must be talking about our parents when we're talking about 30 years experience. That can't be us, right? No, it can't be us. (laughs) (laughs) I just became a grandma for the second time. I cannot believe it. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's crazy. Let me say something up front, Malene. You may be the most famous person in my book. Do you know why that is? No. Because I've told your story about coming to the social media marketing world, and maybe we'll get to it later more times than any other story that's in the book. Yeah. I, I'll bet I've told that story several dozen times on podcasts and speeches that I've given. You, it's a fun story, and you are the one that, you know, in some ways sparked the idea for this book. Oh, you already uh, you already answering my first uh, question almost, uh, but but I will have another one first. Let's first talk about what makes an event unforgettable. There's a lot of things for sure that can cause an event to stand out and be unforgettable versus forgettable, and and I call a forgettable event boring because it didn't make an impact. It could actually have lots of bells and whistles and things that look like it should be unforgettable. But in the end of things, it's an event that's memorable, an event that is meaningful, and an event that is momentous. So when I talk about being memorable, it's something that is unexpected, something that might be 
unusual or creative, and it probably engaged all of your senses at one point or another, making its way from short-term to long-term memory. So you're going to remember it. It probably helped you take action on things even while you're there. So if you've taken action, you've built some of those things into it that are unusual, that make it something that you're going to talk about, then it's far more likely that it's going to have an impact on you that lasts longer than a day or a week or 30 days. So I don't know if you knew this, but the likelihood of you remembering an event or something you learned at an event is about 10% after 30 days. So in other words, you've forgotten 90% of what you learned and experienced within the first 30 days after the event without intentional design. And, and this I, is even if I was a happy participant, right? You might have been a happy participant, yeah. but you might have been happy because you had a lot of drinks. Then you're going to really forget what you had, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I want to mention no, not many people know this, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't exactly dentist or agriculture or something maybe boring topics like that. That's not the events that I went to. I was head of innovation in a big company, so these were big innovation events, and I've forgotten yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. You might remember things about them, but this is my bet. The things that you remember are not what the event organizers wanted you to remember. The things that actually make an impact or a difference. And so that's the second M that I said is meaningful. If it's not meaningful to you personally, if it yeah. doesn't somehow make your life better, give you an aha, um, something that you're going to be able to utilize, you know, whether immediately or long-term, then the, the significance isn't as great. And so it's not as unforgettable. And the momentous part of it is really talking about stacking key moments together, strong moments together. It's the little personal touches, but if you have a lot of those starting to add up together, then it, it reaches this level of momentum that becomes unforgettable. And when you've got all those things working together, I think an event is far more likely to be unforgettable. Yeah. So it doesn't, you, what you're saying is that it doesn't have to be huge things i don't have to uh, meet someone super famous or have fireworks or whatever whatever it can be super small things yeah it could be as small as a toothbrush yeah it can do you want to tell the story <laughs> or do you want me to <laughs> well i'd be interested in your version of the story because i tell it a lot so why don't you tell your audience about the toothbrush and how that made a difference for you. This was the first time I participated in the event and I arrived in the morning. First of all, I was so impressed about the event didn't start that day. It started months before. There was an app where we could connect and, and engage and create our own small events around the event. So I actually knew a lot of people when I arrived. But as a part of that, there was also what, what greeted me was a happy staff dancing at the interest. And I was, I was already blown away there. Then someone asked me, do you know anyone here? And they brought me to another person and made sure that we talked before they left me. And I'm an extroverted person. And, and still, I, I, I highly appreciated that because that's a difficult thing for many people at an event. So already there, I was impressed. Then I realized, I had forgotten to brush my, brush my teeth. And I went to the information desk and asked if there was a drugstore nearby where I could buy such thing. And 
oh, and and of course, <laughs> of course, the lady told me that I only had to go to the bathrooms, and there would be a small basket with everything I needed, and there was everything you could need at an event in that basket in the bathroom in the ladies' room. So. I, I was so impressed with that. Uh, that that was a, a, one of the stories that I told you. I remember I told you another story as well, that the very first talk that I went to was Cliff Ravenscraft, or might have been the second that day, might have been the second. Uh, but I was in the room. I was still kind of figuring out where, where the heck am I? <laughs> what is going to happen at this event? And a guy approaches me and talks to me and so why are you here and what do you expect to get from this and and then he got on stage so I said, okay <laughs> this is the speaker in a room as big as this who wants to talk to me just because i'm here he wants to know what i want to hear about in this mm. talk and this does not mean he was not well prepared he was very well prepared uh, but that kind of engagement between the speakers and the audience I was just so impressed with that that I mentioned it to you later. Um, yes. That 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 these small things were the stories that I have had told everyone about, not not necessarily who was there. <laughs> so, and what I loved about the first story you told me is that you decided on the spot. Oh, if they've thought about that detail, yeah. they must have thought of everything. I'm buying yeah. my ticket for next year right now. Yeah, And then you said that you went back home and started talking it up to all your friends and you've yes. had multiple friends either buy a virtual or a physical ticket coming to the event. So, you know, the reason I tell the story is I say, well, the ROI on that toothbrush is incredible. Like yes. it pays for many toothbrushes time and time again. And what you may not know is the backstory of the toothbrush. Did I ever tell you why there were even toothbrushes in the bathroom? And I don't think so. Because that's I, not I, normal. You mentioned there was a discussion about it. <laughs> it's not a normal thing to see at an event. But here's what happened is the first three years of the conference, we were in a single hotel. So the previous year, we'd been at a Hyatt hotel. And we had grown so much that we needed to move to a convention center in what they call a citywide, which means you've got people staying in, in three or more hotels throughout the city. So we started asking ourselves some questions saying, you know, it'd be bad if someone needed to leave the convention center for a reason and never came back. And mm -hmm. so we said, why would they leave? Now, some people are going to leave and not come back and you can't stop them, but we wanted to know why would they leave? So there were three things that we thought of. One was they might want to get some work done. Secondly, they might want to kick their feet up and get a, you know, a few minutes of rest at some point during the day, because it's a long day. And thirdly, we thought they might want to brush their teeth. Yeah. So we solved all three problems, but the first two we solved, you know, we created a space where they could work. There was Wi-Fi, there was power strips, and it was a quieter place. We, we also created a room that was darker that we called the quiet zone if you need to take a nap or just be yeah. quiet for a little bit. And then we said, then we did what you described is we provided those baskets of toothbrushes and toothpaste and dental floss and mouthwash. And I forget what else was in there. If Cough anything drops else. drops and everything. There was Cough everything. drops. <laughs> yeah. And we had mints at the desks outside. So we were, we knew if you're going to network, you won't yeah. probably do want to at least have fresh breath. You may or may not want to brush yeah. your teeth, but we wanted to make it easy for you because we figured most people probably didn't think to bring, bring their toothbrush from the hotel. And 
it's a long way back. Yours, I think, was like 20 or 25 minutes away. Yeah. So that had been yeah. a long round trip. And we thought, you know what? The danger's there that Malene may not come back. And we want to make sure that she doesn't have to even ask herself that question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely so. a good uh, a good return on that investment. Hundred <laughs> percent. And yeah. then I think what you described with Cliff, you know, that's a that is a cultural thing that we look for in speakers. Speakers who are willing to hang out and ask questions and be available to the audience. That is part of the what we expect of people at our event. It's not something you're going to find at every event. And I don't know that you realistically can expect that of every person at every event, but it was something we knew was important. And yeah. I, I love how you described the experience you had coming in because you remind me how, how important those questions are. Hey, you know, what are you here to learn? Who would you like to meet? You know, where are you coming yeah. from? Very simple, obvious questions. But when they take action and introduce you to someone very quickly upon arrival, it makes such a big difference in in your experience, doesn't it? Yeah. So all of this happened maybe within one and a half hours. And that kind of framed the entire event for me. And and you're completely right. It sets sets my uh, expectations uh, in a way that that I just trust everything will be okay. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's so So important. yeah. yeah, so you you lean as a participant, you lean forward into the event instead of uh, um, you release the brakes a little. Yeah, it's called psychological safety. We want you to feel like we do have all your needs taken care of, that you can rest, that you're not in this state of flight or fight or freeze, where you're wondering, do I need to worry about what's coming around the corner? Is there a bear over there? Are these people coming after me? But if we can put you at ease. So that you can relax and you already have some friends and some people that are there for the same reason, then you're going to, you are going to lean in. You say, man, what more is coming? What more is coming? And you keep looking and expecting. And I think it transforms the way people experience events when you can put them at ease like that. I, I, I completely agree. And to the listeners, if you are, if you want to experience what a, an event should be like, go to social media marketing world. It's every year. Next time. February, I think. February 18 to 20 in 2024. Yes. Yes. So um, one thing that I uh, noticed in your book, which is called Unforgettable, the Art and Science of Creating Memorable Experiences. One of the things that I noticed was that you talk about the senses, um, Mm. the, the visual concept, music, the use of essential oils, or coffee, <laughs> the aroma from coffee. Can you talk a little bit about how you use that to evoke emotions? Yeah, so coming back to our conversation about memory, um, uh, Effing Haas is a German psychologist who first studied retention and memory. He did this back in the late 1800s, but the research still stands today. And when we combine senses, we increase the likelihood that somebody is going to remember things. And then as, to your point, music evokes emotion. Like if I were to ask you, yeah, if I knew like one of your favorite songs from when you were in high school or college age, uh, university days, and I played that for you, I can imagine that it would take you somewhere. Uh, it would take you back to a memory or maybe a bunch of memories that are all related to that song. Um, I, at one of the years at Social Media Marketing World, the walk-in band played the song by the Steve Miller band, Fly Like an Eagle. 
And for me, that takes me straight back to my college days and mowing lawns, going to parties, and just a happy period in my life. Not, not a specific memory, but a feeling of this time of possibility. And when I heard the band play that, and I didn't know they were going to play it, it took me back to a happy place. And I almost was undone. Like <laughs> I, I became teary-eyed. I was glad the song lasted for three or four minutes because I was so taken aback. And what I didn't know is like the guy singing it wrote the song, which that just blew me away altogether. Um, but um, music can do that. Music yeah. evokes emotions. And if you play the right music, it can put people in the right frame of mind. But in, in the converse, if you play the wrong music, you know, so if you play rap music, when you're expecting people to be in a more reflective state, you're asking them to write their vision statement or figure out their values. And you're playing something that's got more irritating or more. And I don't want to say that in a wrong way, but it's, it's agitating. It's trying to work you up. It's trying to, you know, try, trying to get you to move. And your mind is trying to think deeply. Those don't usually go well together. Now, some people it does. Some people's brains are wired where they want that edgy stuff to get their best thoughts. But I would say the majority of people, that's not the way their minds work. And so music has to be thoughtful, having the right kind of music at the right moment as people are going through uh, this experience. And then scents are the same way. So you want to be aware of what, what is going to be evoked by different kinds of aromas coming in. And some things are going to put people at ease and help them relax. Other things are going to energize them. Um, there, are, there are always negative smells that might take someone to the wrong place. If I smell smelly socks, I go straight back to junior high in the locker room at school where I was getting bullied. That's not a positive memory. Or if I smell rotten eggs, it takes me back to when I was in Kenya ne living next to a sugar plantation. And... I got sick to my stomach smelling the sulfur because rotten eggs is the smell that sulfur has. And I remember that very distinctly. And I remember positive memories from that time, but I, I go back to my stomach getting cramped because of that negative smell. So we want to be careful how we use smell, but it can enhance and make something much more uh, memorable. And we usually attach memories to smell and music in a kind of a secondary way. Do you know what? Before we leave uh, the music part completely, mm. uh, like a week or two ago, I came across on my computer the song that you and Brianna Schelko created in not last year, but the year before. And I okay. was on stage singing that in the choir. That's another thing you do. If we get involved like that, we get to dance, we get to uh, do flash mobs and or be on stage uh, in singing in the choir. Um, And I got teary. I got teary from that song. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Also happened to me last year when I saw uh, just uh, outside the convention center, I saw Social Media Marketing World, the, uh, the sign the yeah. day before on Sunday, started tearing up right away. <laughs> yeah. The associations that you have when you see something, you hear something, you smell something can be strong in bringing back, you know, positive memories. Those are happy tears. Those aren't sad tears. No. Um, and there's so much more associated with it. You know, it's all the relationships and the change that came with it. You know, we, we have choirs and we don't always, we, you know, we've done that some years and some years we don't, it's just not always practical, no. but it's because we like to get people involved. 
we think having people involved and invested in the creation yeah. of the show makes it more powerful for everyone. And you find out, you know, there's a lot of people coming that have musical skills and background who maybe aren't using those anymore. And I learned that in the early years and said, well, let's give them a chance. Let's find out, you know, do they want to maybe use those abilities in a way that they haven't for years because they've been doing marketing. So yeah. it, it makes it fun for people too, when they feel like, okay, I was, I was part of that. Like I created that moment. That was, that was really fun. Yeah. And it's a, it's a great conversation starter among the participants as well. Are you in the choir? Are you, are you dancing? Are you? Right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, Phil, obviously you are the right person to write this book. Why now? So it's funny. The why now started six years ago in 2017 is when I first got the idea for a book. Um, and it was about something slightly different, something that became more of a sub point within a chapter. Um, you may remember reading about this idea of time standing still. And I thought that's what we want. Like, you know, we want things to slow down when they come to the event so much that they can forget about all the outside pressures, all the noise going on in their life. And they're able to really tackle the big things going on in their business, going on in their career, maybe in their personal life. It uh, just depends on like where someone's at, but we want the space where that's happening. And so I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to write a book about. I'm going to teach people how to make time stand still. And it didn't take very long before I realized that only God can do that. I can't do that. And that's not something I can teach. I um I'd experienced it at a musical one time. And so I went to the director of that musical later and I asked him, can you teach me how you did that? You know, what did you do with the lights? How did you use costuming and staging? You know, what was it? How did you enhance that script so that that moment for me happened? And I described a moment where it happened. He said, well, it's really cool that that happened for you there. But I'll bet you if you came back five more times that that might, moment might happen at a different point in the script, in the story. And he said, and so here's my secret. You can't make that happen. But what you can do is you can tell a really good, compelling story to the best of your ability. And you create the space where people can engage with the story. And depending on where they're at when they come in, they're going to find their moment at a different spot. And that made me realize, okay, my premise for the book is off. And so I started rethinking it and said, well, how do I create those conditions? How do I tell stories? How do I create conditions where people can slow down and have these powerful moments, no matter where they're at? And so that's what ended up becoming the book. It got slowed down because of the pandemic. I actually put it on pause. So the why now is it was supposed to come out in 2020 or at least by 2021, I was supposed to finish it in 2020. It probably would have been somewhere in the first half of 21 when it came out, but that obviously got put on hold. So I stopped working on it. The publisher said, stop working on it. Um, the world does not need this book right now. Um, no one's talking about in-person events. And then late 21, I started working on it again, finished it up um, it, late last year, fin you know, finalized it with my editor, I think by November. And then the publisher took over and when you work with the publisher, it's a lot longer process than if you're self-publishing, which I know when you've done quite a few times with people and for yourself. But, you know, I wanted that. I wanted the backing of a publisher so that it has the chance of getting into bookstores. It probably won't this time around, other than a few select ones. Um, but that's okay, because 
the partnership has been amazing. They've helped me in ways that I couldn't imagine. Um, but that's, that's how it started. That's the why now. I do think the world has come back with a fury toward in-person events. So the book is really resonating. And what's really funny, Malene, is that this year, there's I've heard two themes in people's, well, three. There's three themes that I hear people talking about when it comes to conferences. One is AI, and that's the theme everywhere you seem to turn. One is community. And then the third one is experience. So everyone's talking about experience and experience design right now. And it's like, that's like the end, the N word uh, for event planners. And I didn't even know it was a word when I wrote the book, came up with the title. I, I came up with the title in 2018 and never changed it. Yeah. Um, I even challenged the publisher to change it and they liked it. They said, no, there's nothing to change. We like, we like it, stick with it. So, um, so that's a little bit of the story. Yeah, cool. So um, when we talk about your author journey, this was this was part of it. But what are some of the challenges that you've personally faced, apart from a pandemic happening, we're closing all, <laughs> making the event topic a little less relevant, but more in the terms of the process, what have been challenging for you? Well, there's been personal, physical challenges. So on two different occasions over the last couple of years, I've had my my left hand has gone numb due to some neck issues. And if you can imagine, it's hard to type or hard to write when mm. one of your hands has gone numb because not only was it numb, I was in pain. So mm. there have there been multiple physical, personal challenges that required mental fortitude. Um, but then there's also the, well, what's this book really about? And when I first started trying to get back into writing it after the pandemic, I wasn't sure what book I should write anymore. So I went down a rabbit trail for, I don't know, 10,000 words. <laughs> we'll talk in words since your audience is authors. I went easily 10,000 words into a different book, um, some of which I was able to retrieve. But I started writing a book called um, How to Create a Boring Event. And I thought it'd be really funny. Be, everyone would get the sarcasm behind the title and it would be a really fun play to say, okay, here's how you would destroy an event. Now here's what you should do to fix it. Or obviously don't do those things, do the opposite and you'll have an amazing event. That's kind of what the premise was going to be. And I literally, I got over 10,000 words into that book, but around somewhere on the 10,000 word count, it started to shift and I started to question myself and I heard, had people say, Phil, that's funny, but who's going to buy that? No one wants to know how to ruin their event. No one wants to create a boring event. They're not going to pay you for it. It's a blog post. It might be a video. It might do well as a video or a blog post where, you know, you're kind of playing that, you know, that devil's advocate role or being funny, but it's not, no one's going to buy that book. It's like, oh shoot, you're right. And so then I had to go back to ground zero and rewrite my outline because now I'd lost my way. I literally lost my way of what is this book about anymore? I didn't know. And so my editor said, Phil, just go take an hour and write a new uh, outline for the book. It, it took me a lot longer than an hour. It probably took a week of me thinking about it. But once I did that, it was like, oh, I've got something way different and better. Because I started to think about, well, what are the things that I teach people? What do I teach the volunteers at the at the conference? What are the things? And that's when... I came upon the metaphor that became 
the centerpiece of the book, which is baking bread. And I can't tell you exactly how I found it because there's not like a formula for how you find your metaphor. Because I just started thinking about it. Said, you know, and I, I've often talked about the similarity between a restaurant experience and an event experience. But somewhere, maybe thinking about restaurants, I came across bread. I don't know. I'm not a baker. My mom and grandmother were, but I realized that the similarities were profound. That you know, bread has four main ingredients. And even a 12-year-old can, with the right recipe, can put those together and, and come out with a good, you know, a decent, we'll say, an edible loaf of bread. Um, but it takes 10,000 hours for you to reach the level of mastery where you can create a, an amazing artisan loaf of bread that people will brag about. And the same thing is true with an event. There's, you know, just four or five basic ingredients that even a novice, when putting them together, can create an event where learning can happen, but it's not going to be amazing. It's going to be one of those forgettable events that you talked about, unless it's by accident. But if you want to create a masterful, unforgettable event, then you've got to put in those 10,000 hours. And I said, well, I'm going to teach people how to shorten that, that window of time by teaching them what I know in this book and hopefully get you from 10,000 down to maybe just a few thousand hours or less so that you had the benefit of my learning and my learning comes on the shoulders of a lot of other people as well. There's a, a couple of interesting things in, in what you're saying. First of all, that what you end up with or after all that uh, is a little bit of a messy process. <laughs> what you end yes. up with is what the outer world, that's exactly how we see you. <laughs> it's mm. it's 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 a wonder how sometimes uh, what is really should be closest doesn't that that doesn't occur to you until you've been through a process so you kind of need to juggle a little bit around <laughs> until you get to that and, and another thing is also that that um, i noticed how you how you found your way when you spent time on the structure uh, mm. And 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 that's that's a, that's definitely a key takeaway for many authors that the preparation before we start writing is often more important than the writing. Uh, it it can definitely shorten the time. And then I also yeah. noticed something, and not just from what you said, but because I because I, I I know about your process apart from what we're talking about here, that you've been really good at involving a lot of people. Uh, in this process. And I know you've built also a book launch team. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing, though, about the process of writing. Um, when I first started back, I wasn't able to get the engine going. So my editor said, Phil, I want you to set a goal to write for seven minutes a day. And I thought she was crazy. Seven minutes. What can you accomplish in seven minutes? But what she knew is if I could get in the habit of just sitting down to write, that it would it would lengthen. And it did. It didn't take long for it to get to 15 minutes and 20 minutes and 30. And eventually, between 45 minutes and an hour, I was writing every day and I was cranking out 700 words to 1,000 words on a pretty much daily basis. And I'd say that discipline um, is a critical piece. Like Get yourself into that rhythm um, if you want to get the book written in. You know, I wrote way more words than I needed to. As far as the launch team, um, it's interesting. You know, I had all these people who said they'd be on the launch team because the book was done, you know, nearly a year ago. 
I had a lot of people say, oh, I'll help you when it comes out. Not everyone does. You know, people's lives become busy. They've got other things going on. But there are people who see you talking about it, who just take it seriously and they want to share it with the world. And they all know this is a hard process. And some of them are authors. Some of them are not. Where I have seen probably the most response are people like yourself who say, Phil, I I saw your books coming out. I'd love to have you on my podcast. And I'd love to share what you did with my audience. Um, If you don't let people know that you're working on it, they don't have the opportunity to see it. So I invited people to help me naming the book, designing the cover, naming the elephant that's on the front of the on the front of the book, Um, several different things, even like the logo um, that I'm now using for the business. I had people, you know, giving me feedback. So where you have opportunities to get feedback along the way, it actually engages your audience and you're not giving the whole thing away. Um, but instead you're getting participants. And from that, what I did is I went through the list and I, and I personally reached out to everyone and said, Hey, thank you for your feedback. Would you be interested when the book comes out and helping me share it with the world? And some of them said, yes. And so some of those people are, are doing that right now. So yeah. that's kind of the process. Yeah. And, uh, and I also think that it's not that as difficult to build a launch team as many people think. Because everybody wants to write a book. It's a, it's like a hidden dream. I know and there was a New York, Time, New York Times study that showed that 82% of all Americans felt they had a book in them that they should publish. Uh, so like an obligation almost. <laughs> so people want to learn from your process. By joining, they can learn something also. So it's not as difficult to um, to build one as people might think. Do you remember what that article said about how many people actually finish their books and share it with the world? Because I, I think I've, it was, I've heard this le- stat, but I can't remember. Less less than one percent, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. which is really kind of interesting, given that a million to two million books come out every year. Yeah. So that must mean the same people are writing those books every year. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is why I call myself a publishing rebel and knowledge liberator. Mm, All of it. that good stuff. We need. We need to find processes that makes it easier to get it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Over so, the friction. And another thing uh, that I have uh, seen you have done is a book trailer. Uh, I love that. I'm gonna link to that as well in the show notes. And uh, you also do social media, obviously. <laughs> so those are kind of the, some of the core strategies. But one of the things that I want to talk about here is that. If you did not create an event when you published this book, (laughs) it would be kind of weird. So I was looking for where's the event. And there is what I'm sure will become an unforgettable event that is happening actually in in those following days after just after this episode comes out. So it's a called Unforgettable Experience Design Summit, and it's a four-day online event with a lot of great people. Again, a lot of great people involved. Tell us about this event. Yeah, well, like you said, it makes sense if I'm going to talk about events that I would produce an event. And I wanted to bring some people together that have been influential in my own learning and talk about a breadth of things that some of which are outside my area of expertise and some of them that are things that I absolutely love talking about. So I put together this four-day, 90 minutes a day. So it's easy for someone to do. 
pretty much wherever you are in the world. It's getting, yeah, I guess it's evening time if you're in Europe. It's early morning if you're in Australia, but it's like right in the middle of the day if you're in the United States. And it's going to be more mostly interview style, um, you know, high in, highly engaging four to five different sessions a day. So none of them are going to be very long. I want to keep it moving. I want to keep you engaged and entertained. And hopefully you'll walk away with um, a lot of questions, a lot of ideas and want to keep digging in more. And it's felt like the perfect way to release the book to the world is to do something like that. So thanks for noticing. Yeah. And to the listeners, if you're listening to this episode, when it comes out, it's right now it's happening and it's a free event if you participate, uh, if you join on a uh, live, right? And free if you and join also, live, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also actually like the model of, uh, I'm not, I, I don't know if you advertise it uh, more than on social media or just organically, or if you also do paid advertisement, but I love that you, uh, as an idea to, to, for, as an inspiration for other aspiring authors or people who are looking into a book launch real soon, uh, that you kind of, you have different levels. So, so it's free to join, get a lot of people in, and then you can buy access to the recordings. Uh, which can create one of those nice loops where an ad can be paid for <laughs> and you can Absolutely. use it to, to build an audience. I, I love that idea. It 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 really looks uh, like an amazing event. I'm going to join. <laughs> well, just for your listeners too, it's a good way to get email addresses. So, exactly. you know, they're giving you their email address for access, which then you have a chance to build a relationship with them. You're obviously hoping some of them whatever percent will upgrade to one of your recording packages. I've got a package where you can even get a copy of the book signed and sent to you. So it's, that's like the top level package. So, you know, it's a good way to build a relationship. It may not be for you, but it made sense for me. Yeah. I I hope you do that. Your hand is well when you're going to sign all of those copies. (laughs) Well, the good news is I'm right-handed, not left-handed. So I can, I can still sign away. <laughs> uh, you're gonna need that. <laughs> so, Phil, my last question: What would you say to someone who's considering writing a nonfiction book? Well, obviously, know why. So, most people who write a nonfiction book are not going to make a living off of their book, even if you've written ten. So, our mutual friend Dan Miller has told me that his books buy him date money. That's yeah. about it. He doesn't, yes. he doesn't make his living off of his books. He makes his living off of the coaching, the programs that he can sell on the back end. So why are you writing the book? You know, if you've always wanted to write one, that, that's cool. And that could be reason enough. You know, you've got something in you. You want to share with the world. You want to get it out there. Um, that may or may not be enough to motivate you to finish it. So why do you want to write it? Why do you have to write it? Who's it for? Get clear on some of those things, because that's going to help you in those dark nights of the soul where you're not sure what to write and you're wondering if it's worth it anymore. Um, but also do this. And Melina, I think you were one of those who told me is 30% of the work is writing the book mm. and the other 70% is marketing it. Yeah. Um, someone told me that after I was done. Thank you very much. If they'd have told me that up front, I don't know if I finished. So for those of you who hear that, it's like, oh, I don't want that job. Well, it, it is what it is. Like if you're gonna, if you want people to buy it, then you've got to spend the time marketing it and getting it out there. And that's a long-term 
proposition and you'll be doing it for a while. You can't just be a creative and say, okay, my book's done. Now I'm going to move on to the next one, which I would love to do, by the way. I'd rather just go on to the next project and not worry about marketing. Let someone else take care of that. But that's not the way it works. Yeah. The launch is a celebration and it can be a very strategic celebration like you're doing. I I love that idea. Uh, But it's also not the finish line, but the start line. (laughs) It is the starting line. Yeah, Everything up till the launch is just prep work for what you wanted. The the very reason why you wanted the book is is what's happening next. Uh, The good thing about having a book is that it's so much easier to get into great conversations when you have a book. So marketing, if you're an entrepreneur, you already have to do your marketing for your business. Now it becomes fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and people know what you can talk about too. So like this conversation, you've been able to guide it because you can see things that I've talked about and cherry pick the ones that you're really interested in. Yes. Yes. Phil, congratulations on your book launch. I hope you have an amazing event and uh, I will see you soon again. Yes. Can't wait. Where do you want people to go learn more about you? Filmershawn.com is my website, and that's where you can see my main social handles. Um, If you want to purchase the book, go anywhere that you buy books online. Um, If you live in the United States and you want a signed copy, you can order it straight through my website. Um, But otherwise, if you live outside the U.S., I encourage you to buy it through Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Books A Million, whatever is available where you live in the world. Guys, help him with his ranking. Buy it online. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you very much.